Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis. And this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. This is the third episode we've done dedicated to the maritime history of Africa. If you haven't heard our previous two episodes, please go back and find them in our back catalogue. We have one on the history of indigenous African canoemen and another on the desolate and vengeful skeleton coast of Namibia, home to thousands and thousands of shipwrecks from centuries of maritime trade, war and exploration, all that passed Namibia. Bia's coast. Today we hear about the history of whaling in Africa. We find out about indigenous African whaling as well as European and American exploitation of African waters. We hear about the numerous uses to which whale products were put both in Africa and abroad and we talk about the written and archaeological evidence. If you don't know what a tripod is then please keep listening. My guests who helped teach me about this fascinating topic are Dr Lynn Harris, who has worked as a maritime historian and underwater archaeologist for over 40 years in South Africa, Namibia, Costa Rica and North and South Carolina. She's currently employed as a professor at the Programme of Maritime Studies at East Carolina University, one of just a handful of programmes in the world that trains graduate students as underwater archaeologists. And with her we have Lindsay Wenzel, a third-year master's student in East Carolina University's programme in Maritime Studies. Her MA thesis centres on the use of converted fishing schooners and what is known as plum pudding whaling strategy as an economic response to whaling's decline during the 19th century. And she writes with a particular focus on Provincetown in Massachusetts. But today they are both here to cast their expertise onto the question of whaling in Africa. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to them as much as I enjoy talking with them. Here are the excellent Lynn and Lindsay. Guys, thank you both very much for joining me today. Thanks, Sam. It's a pleasure. In fact, quite an honour to be on your podcast today. Thank you for having us. Oh, an honour? No, <laughs> no one's ever said an honour, I don't think. <laughs> uh, but that's good. So uh, that means we must, we must be doing something right. Um, Let's start with a general question about the history of whaling. Why is it important? So in terms of the African heritage of whaling, it was one of the major fisheries. 
And uh, from colonial time onwards, it was a major economic industry behind agriculture and, of course, winemaking in South Africa, which many people don't know about. The other really important aspect of it is that it's a shared whaling heritage. It incorporates indigenous whaling, uh, as well as American, British, as well as Norwegian in the 20th century. So this very international heritage is, is part of many different cultures, maritime heritages. Can you explain about the history of why? What was the, what's the link with winemaking? Oh, don't no, no, no. That. That, there was, so there were three industries that were the main industries in, in southern Africa during colonial times. This is 1600s, 1700s with, with the Dutch and the British. And winemaking and agriculture were the main industries, but whaling was one of those economic industries as well. It's often neglected and in the background as, as a fishery. Oh. Extremely lucrative. I see. And um, what about the sort of the northern, the northern story? So I would add that um, one of the main importances of African whaling in particular is just the movement of people, especially in Cape Verde. It brought just a ton of emigrants into northern whaling ports like Provincetown and New Bedford, especially from those islands. And we still have communities of Cape Verdeans in Massachusetts today, and it's a really rich culture. And uh, just that movement of people and really like Dr. Harris was saying, it's an international industry that impacts a variety of different cultures and a variety of different people. So there's really a lot that you can study through whaling and through that lens of whaling. I'm quite interested in the way it re- relates to the history of regulation at sea and people trying to control the industry or people trying to control the sea. Uh, does the history of whaling have an important part to play in that history of maritime regulation? Uh, yes, from from the colonial time onwards, there was competition about whaling charters. For example, in the 1600s, the Dutch West Indies Company received a charter to hunt of hunt whales off southern Africa, and uh, so they tended to monopolise that industry. Later on, Americans and um, other nations uh, sort of join join into the game. And as it became more popular and more lucrative, the whaling stocks started to be depleted. And so what you see happening in terms of environmental history is switching from one whale species to another as it became scarce. And and then ultimately whaling um, legislation being enacted uh, for different species at different times. But ultimately it went on, whaling went on in Africa until... 1975, which is when it finally was ended with the Endangered Species Act. So some of it was was regulated by the by peoples themselves and communities because they simply were not, for example, humpback and blue whales, which are the big migratory whales. When those stocks were depleted, they started switching to the smaller whales, the more uh, local ones like the fin and the say and the minke, and then ultimately the sperm or the southern right whale. And, and so you, you see that trend, and that, that's a really important um, part of whaling history as well as the, the environmental aspects of it, mm-hmm. um, which is not our really area of expertise, but it does impact what whales they were hunting and who was hunting them at what time. I'm, I'm fascinated in um, the indigenous practice of whaling in Africa as well. So there are two sides to this story, aren't there? There's the European colonial whaling, but also a pre-existing history of whaling. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So the 
one of the sources we used was the archaeological record, which is fascinating. And they found archaeological evidence in the Khoisan coastal communities in along Namibian coastline, as well as South African of whalebone in deposits along with other types of shellfish and animal bone and uh, not only in coastal communities but also inland. So the speculation is that the coastal peoples were probably scavenging whaling and then trading with inland groups for other types of resources. So that's one. There's a a wealth of, of archaeological reporting material on that. The other is primary sources of early travelers who actually depict and draw and describe these early indigenous people's homes where they built them from whale ribs. So they have structures, frameworks for their huts made out of whalebone, as well as um, furniture like whalebone vertebrae that were used for seats. And uh, and then palisades or stockades for their livestock, for the um, sheep and the cattle that they herded along the beach. Another interesting angle to that is the trade that ensued between the local whalers, the Dutch and the American in the in the 1700s. So the Europeans, their product was the blubber, but they didn't consume the meat. So they would give the whale carcasses to the Khoisan indigenous people for consumption and often trade it for their sheep or cattle on their beach and other resources. So there was this, this engagement between the Europeans, the Americans, and the um, indigenous people, going back to the 16 and, and 1700s in these really remote parts um, of Africa. So the Khoisan give away their cattle and they get whale blubber, whale meat in return. They would they would trade various other resources for whale meat. Yeah. Um, the other types of archaeological evidence of indigenous people is, and there might be more out there, but but the Tordzilo Hills in Botswana which is probably migratory distance from the Namibian coastline, has rock art depicting whales, which gives further evidence to the speculation that there was this trade between inland and coastal indigenous people for them, at least to the extent that they would do artwork on whales in their habitats. Is there any artwork that depicts ships, or is it just the whales? No, there is, actually. There's, in, in South Africa, the portable galleon, which shows a ship, with masts, it's it's a fairly it's, it's eroded, so the details aren't visible. But it's clearly a ship, and there is something in that depiction that looks something like a fish or a whale. Um, it's unclear yet, but there's strong possibility, you know, that more of these colonial engagement um, rock art uh, depictions are, are around um, as well. It sounds fascinating. I'd love to see that. Uh, have um, historians? covered this subject well or are you sort of breaking new ground here? I would say that history-wise there's definitely been more of a focus on New England and American-based whaling, um, not as much in Africa and I think the issue with that is that we just don't have as many archaeological remains of African whaling and a problem with that is because these shore-based whaling sites are pretty ephemeral so actually finding Archaeological remains of shore whaling can prove to be difficult sometimes, but uh, what's interesting to me, especially in Cape Verde, is that there's really a modern and active valorization of this intangible cultural heritage. So, uh, for example, in 2006, there was a stamp collection issued in Cape Verde based on this history of whaling. There's also... um, 
rock formations that are referred to as like uh, Anca Balea, I believe that's what they called the certain rock formation still today in Puerto Rincao because it resembles the back of a whale. And there's also, um, I think Dr. Harris mentioned, there's still a local art that's based on the vertebrae and bones. It incorporates the vertebrae and bones of whales that are still used today. It certainly makes sense for people to be whaling in Cape Verde. Can you just talk about the, the migratory routes of the whales? Why, why are they in this area of, off the African coast? So um, there are actually in Cape Verde, there's almost 24 species of whales that are found along this migratory route. And it's mostly because Cape Verde is a really rich breeding ground for these whales. So there's a lot of access to these different species and especially humpbacks and baleen whales, and they'll breed around the area of Cape Verde before returning to high latitudes for feeding grounds in the North Atlantic. Yeah. So mostly because of breeding grounds, at least in Cape Verde. Right, right. so that Gulf of Guinea with the warm waters uh, was, was ideal, and uh, then they would migrate down along the coast of Africa during the uh, summer months of the Southern Hemisphere to Antarctica, which was a very rich feeding ground, or krill, small crustacean feed in Antarctica come back up past the through the South Atlantic and then to the North Atlantic back to the breeding grounds so that was the route uh, of the of these whales was up and down the coastline of uh, South Africa mm-hmm. uh, but you know the the other whales in addition to hunting those migratory whales there were also species like the southern right whale which was in the the uh, colder waters of southern Africa in the South Atlantic and those whales couldn't survive in the warmer waters. They were adapted to the, the colder waters. So, again, there was a variety of whales that the, the indigenous people and the whalers were exploiting and very aware of their seasonal migratory routes and carving. They were most vulnerable when uh, they came into the bays to carve. So they were, you know, in tune with the, the whale seasonality and um, breeding grounds. And that most of this was shore whaling, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about um, Cape Verde and the coast of Namibia and down to South Africa. D- did this apply to the whole of the African coast or were there just sort of hot spots that we know about? Yes. Our, our research focused on the Guinea, the, the northwestern African whaling cultures and then South Africa. So they probably are other areas but it is less available in terms of historical and archaeological literature right now so there's um, it is just to an extent driven by the available scholarship Mm -hmm. Um, so there are gaps to fill in there's plenty more for other researchers to um, dig into yeah it's so exciting when you find a new subject like this which you're you're only scratching the surface and actually exactly you know when you start getting idea answers and um you realize you've got to fill in all the other gaps to to see whether they're representative or not yeah. filling in with research gaps that's kind of what my graduate thesis focuses on so i'm primarily focused on new england whalers but specifically plum pudding whaling I don't know if you've heard of plum... What, I don't know what plum pudding... No, no idea what that is. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty common for people not to know what plum pudding whaling is. But plum pudding whaling is this strategy of whaling which focuses on the Atlantic. And instead of doing these multi-year long voyages, it was really only a couple of months. So like six to nine months or so. And they get the name plum pudding because since they weren't gone for multiple years, they were more easily... They also... Um, weren't as far offshore. They were kind of inshore whaling along the coast of North America. And then they'd also go to Cape Verde. 
and I believe down to the Brazilian banks before heading back to New England to refit and then head up to the Arctic. But anyways, they were always close enough to shore that they could refit and get kind of these indulgences like fresh fruit and make plum pudding. So um, that's how they got their name. But that's kind of an area of research where I'm focusing on because I think that plum pudding was used more so after the discovery of petroleum in 1859 because you're able to take smaller vessels, which is more cost effective and um, with limited resources and whale oil not pulling as much of a profit as it used to, these shorter voyages are, um, you're able to pull more of a profit and not expend as many resources to do the same thing you were doing, you know, 10 years ago when whaling was a lot more profitable. Yeah. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I, I, that would have been my type of whaling. Yeah. That would have been the kind of boat that I was on. Short and sharp and I could have some nice food. Exactly. I think that really appeals to me. Um, in terms of doing the research, um, uh, trying to kind of get to the bottom of what was going on. Do local modern communities have living memories of whaling practices? So in Cape Verde especially, uh, I think I mentioned a little bit before, but they still have this active valorization of whaling culture. So there's like the stamp collection that was in 2006. They also have um, geographic locations that are named after whaling. And uh, Dr. Harris has some good examples of waypoints and geocaches that actually focus on whaling. Yeah, Yeah, so the Simonstown Historical Museum, which is based in Cape Town in False Bay, this was a British naval station. Um, Today is still the South African Navy station area, but They've collected uh, whaling histories and orals as part of the local community history. It's not exclusively devoted to whaling, but it is part of the the, the economic uh, economics of the area and the maritime history. And it's it's really exciting. The these were uh, small whaling boats, literally whaling boats, rowboats that were taken out with about four oarsmen, a harpooner and a helmsman, to into the bay. 
and uh, it was quite a um, you know recreational activity for the local community. After they'd harpooned the whale and they would drag down the coast in the small boat, the, the children and everybody would be sort of running along the cliffs waiting to see what happened to them, whether they'd get dragged out to sea or they'd be successful in their endeavour and then bring the whale up um, onto the beach and then everybody would come down and uh, assist in the, the process of flancing the whale and uh, boiling up the blubber. So these oral histories are, are available and there are also a number of um, graphics, old photographs that are compiled in this local repository. So I think that's, that's interesting. You know, These were not colonials, they were um, indigenous people of colour. Uh, during the you know the early 1900s late 1800s so that's a good collection of information and then um, it's a little bit out of the scope of our current research what we're focusing on but I think it's important to mention these uh, ceremonial practices used in modern whaling so for example in Ghana in 1997 there was a stranded sperm whale that was actually given a customary burial ceremony by local fishermen because of this traditional veneration of cetaceans and I think that's just really in- interesting practice because um, still in other cases some whales are still used as marine bushmeat and it kind of gets a little bit out of the scope of our research but there's definitely still this uh, modern connection to historic whaling through continued whaling or at least continued veneration of whales themselves. And respect for the marine environment, Definitely. which I, that sounds nice. Yeah. Cause you, you can't actually bury a whale that big, can you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Doing some interesting, um, kind of, you know, sy- symbolic actions. Uh, the, what about material culture, objects? Do we have um, any, any interesting surviving material culture? So in, in South Africa, of course, you have the, the, the ruins or the remains of these whaling uh, stations. One example is a small, almost like a historic house whaling station in uh, False Bay, which is now part of the South African Resource Heritage, Heritage Agency historic site. And uh, it's rather, it's, it's unusual. It's embedded in a local residential community, but it's been preserved. Uh, and you can still see the uh, basement, which was where the whaling boats were kept, the platform for the tripods for boiling the blubber, and then the labourers' quarters and the sheds for, for equipment in the back. So that's one example of something that's been preserved in a modern-day landscape. Um, and then the others are more remote, and they're uh, ruins of these 20th-century whaling stations. So between 1900 and 1914... This was the heyday of of whaling in South Africa. And so these stations sprouted up all over the place. And um, there are more ruins, which include the factory, the processing areas, the laborers' quarters. And there are a number of these stations out there that have been, they have a very preliminary data set, uh, maybe a map and a a designation in in a database. But those are all historic sites, historic archaeological sites that uh, could uh, deserve further further study. And these were, you know, pretty large yards. They accommodated about 120 workers. It was during the, of course, the apartheid era of South Africa, where you would see designated on the maps the, um, you know, the white labourers' quarters and the black labourers' quarters, and then fairly subsistence uh, labour unit where they would have vegetable gardens and and livestock. So it would be a self-supporting 
industrial unit for processing these this whale meat. So that's another example might be just remnants in these whaling towns, for example, tripods, which were these gigantic cast iron cauldrons used for boiling up the blubber and they you know fairly ubiquitous in any small whaling port. Um, you'll see them in front of a, a store or a museum or in a local street. False Bay has an interesting geocache uh, type of initiative where tourists and the local population can sort of roam around the town and locate historic icons. And one of these geocache areas is are the whaling equipment and paraphernalia, for example, the, the cast iron pot. Other small features in the landscape, sort of footprints of whaling, are the eyeballs, uh, which are along a pier, a popular walking area for the for the public, and these eye bolts were used to winch up the whale carcasses onto the beach. Another remnant is the cauldron platforms, which were bricked out. Unfortunately, these have been turned into barbecue places or, or outdoor cooking areas for the public on the beach. But they still, you know, the I guess the the footprints or the the signatures of whaling that are visible to the locals. So in Cape Verde, uh, there's actually the remnants of a whaling station in Sao Nicolau, and the Portuguese actually never built a whaling fleet because they viewed the Cape Verdean islands as not being profitable enough for whaling. So it was mostly dominated by foreign whaling. And then during the mid-19th century, foreign whalers started to leave the islands because of these depleted stocks and shore whaling from Cape Verdeans actually kind of took over the industry. So there is one station, um, some remnants of it, on Sao Nicolau that uh, is still visible today. Other than that, um, not as much just because those sites are so ephemeral. Yeah, it's so exciting with um, much more to be discovered uh, in your ongoing research. I very much look forward to, to hearing about it. Lynn, you actually mentioned to me um, a separate topic about shipwrecks on the Namibian coast, which I was fascinated by. Yes. Tell me a little bit about those. Um, yes, so the one that's related to, to whaling specifically is uh, Mia Bay, which is a incredibly remote area along the coast of, of Namibia. And uh, this is a, a restricted diamond mining area. In 2011, our East Carolina University took a group of students out there to study this area, including uh, the shipwrecks, which are now on land as the coastline has migrated. But uh, one of the uh, sites that our hosting group, the Bintook Underwater Club, was very invested in were these two small boats called the Ladies of Miob, and they resembled uh, the classic American whaling boat. We know American whalers were on this coastline, and they were surrounded by whale bones. We were not sure whether they were whaling boats or diamond mining boats that were used to for ship-to-shore transport, and there's a, a strong possibility they were used for both. So uh, we were involved in um, preserving these two small boats, putting preservative um, substances um, on the hulls with the local community and uh, learning more about the, the whaling community and these um, communities along the shore that conducted whaling. Again, most likely American whalers from New Bedford. It's fascinating the way that the coastline has migrated, as you say. So you end up with shipwrecks in the, in the desert. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So the, uh, this is a, um, 
a, a shipwreck that is called the Edward Bolin. It's clearly visible on Google Earth maps. It's sort of part of a sand dune now, and it's a really popular tourism site uh, for locals simply because it's such a, uh, you know, unusual feature in the middle of the desert. That was also part of our study trip uh, with our students. We were interested in the history of the vessel as it related to the Nama um, and Damra wars, the colonial wars, because it was used as an incarceration facility for indigenous peoples. Later on, it became basically a dormitory for miners, for diamond miners. And their descriptions of travelers who arrived in the desert or new miners, and they sort of see this, saw the ship lit up through the portholes with a, a lighting system for the, for the miners. What's also interesting is when we were there, it was also the residence for a number of animals, like hyenas who dragged their seal carcasses up into the ship and were now residing in it. So as we came round the corner in our Land Rovers ready to document the ship, we were just assaulted with this, this smell and uh, realized once we got to the ship what we were looking at. It was sort of the, the larder of the local hyena population we were about to enter. Well, it's a wonderful story. Um, I, I think I'm going to do some more on that. That sounds absolutely fascinating. I've always been interested in ships that have a second life one way or another. Yeah. This, this was about the fourth life of, of this vessel. And yeah. uh, it was carrying a lot of well-known families to the, the Namibian settlement. So you have connections with, with names of families who've, who, who now who settled in Vintook. And, and the, the ship uh, paintings and, and stamp collections abound some of the most five-star upscale hotels in Namibia, in Vintuk, which is the capital, have huge paintings of the vessel in their foyers. Uh, so, the, but there's very little. There was very little understanding or knowledge of the ship's role in in its previous life as a prison during the colonial wars or as a diamond mining uh, residence. So. There's, it was also used for, um, I'm trying to think of that, that crazy car show. Um, oh, Top Gear. Top Gear <laughs> took their cars and did a spin around the vessel as part of their, um, you know, entertainment series. <laughs> and uh, there were a number of British film companies as well as German companies who were very enamored with this location for productions. These were usually romance and a lot of violence. And uh, yeah, they would, people would be running around the ship setting up dynamite and, and um, you know, they, these made excellent um, movies yeah. <laughs> at that time period. Yeah, well, it's a wonderful story. Um, listen, thank you both very much for sharing your research on, on the history of whaling on the African coast. It's fascinating. And I, I wish you the best of luck as it carries on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, please make sure that this isn't the last thing you do to enjoy the content we produce. We have a huge back catalogue of fascinating episodes to explore, from great naval battles to shipbuilding, ship models, exploration, fishing, maritime art and literature, trade, famous heroes and maritime disasters, among others. 
Please also do check out our YouTube channel. It is, quite simply, brilliant. There are numerous innovative videos there presenting the maritime past in an entirely new light. My current favourite being a laser scan of HMS Victory that shows Nelson's magnificent flagship in white lines and grids against a black background. Not only can you fly around the ship, but you can even go inside. Please also remember that this podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation. You can find the History and Education Centre of the Lloyd's Register Foundation at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk, where you can join up and please do. There is a free level of membership, but if you're willing to part with a small donation, you get a huge number of benefits, one of which is our winter lecture series, where you can enjoy being entertained and enthralled by some of the finest maritime scholars in the world. You can find all of that at snr.org.uk.